It's Wednesday, November 22nd. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is a deal in place to release 50 hostages held by Hamas. In return, Israel will release 150 prisoners and pause fighting for four days. The hostages would be released in four phases, with at least 10 hostages released in each phase. Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said if Hamas releases more hostages, there will be more pauses. This was not an uncontroversial decision in Israel, even though the cabinet passed it overwhelmingly. There's recognition that the humanitarian desire to save hostages in the past extracted a cost. It wound up imposing, in fact, too much of a cost. Galad Shalit was exchanged for over a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners. One of them was Yaha Sinwar, now chief of Hamas, who orchestrated the raids of October 7th. But Israel is a democracy, and this is what enough of the Israeli people wanted. And if it passes judicial challenge, again, a democracy, the exchange will take place. And I think it had to, just in terms of not compounding the tragedy. Hamas, of course, did not survey their people on what they wanted, most undoubtedly didn't want to be put in this position in the first place. A pause in the fighting and delivery of fuel will, of course, have humanitarian benefits for the Gazans, but they'll also have huge military benefits to Hamas. Hamas can retrench, and speaking of trench, their tunnel networks rely on fuel for air and light. I do think that we have even if we haven't really thought about it too hard, we have a vague conception of the military prosecution of the war being directly tied to the humanitarian costs of the war. Something like if Israel turns the dial up to nine or 10 on the amount of pain inflicted on Hamas, the same amount of pain is inflicted on the populace there. But we don't actually know how truly correlated it is. We'd like to think Maybe Israel could take their foot off the pedal of pursuing Hamas if this lets thousands of innocent Gazans live, but we don't know how true that is. Israel doing nothing to pursue Hamas would incur no deaths of Gazan civilians, though it would practically guarantee more Israeli civilian deaths. Doing everything to wipe out Hamas, given that Israel's a nuclear state, would create total devastation among the civilian populace would be the most immoral act a government has ever taken. But in between total and none, we really don't know. Reminds me of chemotherapy. In attacking the cancer, you destroy the host. There are more or less aggressive forms of treatment, and you hope you get it right. This deal will unite some families, even as some children released will be freed as their fathers are left behind. And that is a ray of good news in this war. But a pause in the war is really just a microcosm of everything I just laid out. Every bit of humanitarian intervention now will have costs down the road. And we, as outsiders of goodwill and decency, don't really know how closely tied the benefits of today are to the costs of tomorrow. On the show today, I saw that horrible 47-minute film of Hamas militants attacking Israel. I took a while to process it, as they say, but now I think I have something worth saying that's in the spiel. But first, Des Fitzgerald, professor of medical humanities and social sciences at the University College of Cork, is out with a new book. Here in America, it's called The Living Cities, why cities don't need to be green to be great. But the European title gets at the thesis of the book much more straightforwardly. Over there, it's called The City of Today is a Dying Thing in Search of Cities of Tomorrow. 
It's a critique of architecture and good intentions. Des Fitzgerald up next. So much of our lives are spent inside edifices of concrete wired with fiber optics staring at screens, and it is unnatural, and it is getting back to nature, touching trees, perhaps taking a forest bath that the studies show resets us. Now, that all seems true or logical, or you probably didn't hear anything that made you say, no, no, I totally object to that. But when you really think about the claims being put forth in that statement and more maximalist versions of those claims, there is a lot of nonsense there. As pointed out by my guest, Des Fitzgerald, he is the author of The Living City, Why Cities Don't Need to Be Green to Be Great. Although I think in the UK, there was a different, more pointed version of of the title of this book. Well, Des Fitzgerald, welcome to The Gist. How are you? I'm good, Mike. Thanks so much. Yeah, the UK title is The City of Today is a Dying Thing, which is uh, which which apparently wouldn't go over so well in the US. <laughs> there you go. So you're unafraid, unafraid to offend the audience. Yeah. It's like you have to tiptoe up to the American audience and say, you know, all this stuff that you're being told about, how a tree will save you, it might not save you. And anyway, what is nature? I'm allowed to say it here. Yeah. I should say the UK title is also a quote from Necroboussier, who is a massive fascist. So that's also a good reason to maybe uh, work around that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's okay. A consideration yeah. for the oh-so-sensitive yeah. U.S. market. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I loved your book because it did strike at just this accepted wisdom. And some of the wisdom is wise, and some of the wisdom is backed up by science or studies about the salubrious effect that nature does have on us as a species. So let's just kind of lay the predicate and say, what do you acknowledge? What are the good effects of nature that you can't really argue with? Oh, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that for at least significant amounts of people, let's say living in particularly stressful circumstances, maybe with some kind of biological predisposition to a mental health problem, that being in and around nature will have some kind of good, measurable, calming, restorative effect. I'm not anti that position at all. I think it's pretty inarguable, actually, based on on the many decades of research we have on that at this point. Yeah, one of the mental health studies is this Denmark study about Mm -hmm. literally days in an asylum. Is that right? So there's a lovely study done in Denmark where, so Denmark is interesting because uh, I used to live in Denmark, so I'm allowed to be a bit rude about Danes. So if, you, if, you, if you're born in Denmark, they give you what they call a CPR number, which is almost like a barcode everyone gets at birth. And that tracks you across various um, uh, various indices over your lifetime, which for Danish researchers is obviously fantastic because they have this amazing individual level data across a person's lifetime. So a group of researchers in a city called Aarhus, right up the north of Denmark, were able to take this individual level data uh, and match it to historical satellite imagery. So they're able to see how much green space there was around your house when you were age six. Um, and the, on, the, on that basis, how likely you were to end up in a psychiatric institution at age 50. And of course, yeah. we're able to show that there was this, I mean, um, uh, dose response effect between the literal volume of green space near your house and the likelihood of having uh, a diagnosis of a mental health problem in later adulthood. So and there's a lot of that. And that's, you know, that's all high quality stuff and convincing. And absolutely, the book is not anti-science. It's not in any way kind of trying to, you know, crap on that, you know, fairly robust research for sure. 
But, okay, so you're allowed to be rude about Denmark, (laughs) but what allows you to be rude about Paris, where you say that there are quite a few European cities that confuse rudeness with personality. In Paris, that is just something about the sheer frequency of interpersonal unpleasantness that over time becomes wounding to the human spirit. I read that to give listeners a sense of the prose involved in the book. But So what's your problem with Paris as relates to an embrace of nature? I mean, it's it's not so much, I mean, I will go to the mat for how much of a dump Paris is. I will, I will, I will fight people on that. I mean, I, I, a lot so of dog the, crap in the street. Is that part of it? <laughs> dog, dog crap in the street. But also, I mean, just it's it's really interesting because people, you know, I think when we kind of conjure up a, a fantasy image of a beautiful city or a beautiful cityscape, you know, it's often what comes to mind is is Paris, you know, the grand boulevards of Paris. And of course, as, as many listeners will know, Paris is, as we currently know it, is a city designed by a fascist madman in the mid nineteenth century, right? I mean, it's a complete eradication of the kind of weirdness and multiplicity of medieval Paris and its transformation into this essentially like massive um, uh, boulevarded almost grid for basically moving vehicles and people down at speed. Um, it's a terrible city. It's, it's The experience of it is really awful. And, you know, not to stereotype, but, you know, there is a certain experience of interpersonal rudeness that one just, you know, it just, I mean, this, you know, it, is, it is, as I say in the book, injurious to the soul at a certain point. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, and also the food is terrible. I, I do, again, I'll go to the mat for the fact that the only good food you get in Paris is at the Peripherique, where the Cambodians and Vietnamese live. Um, but all, the, all this French stuff in the center, uh, no, not for me. So then is the cure for the uh, Parisian or what ails the Parisian soul to uh, traipse about in the forests of France? Perhaps in the Brittany or the Basque region? <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, but, I mean, what is spatially interesting about Paris? So I don't know. So, I lived in London for a long time. If you live in London, one of the joys of London is you can get the train to Paris um, mm-hmm. under under the channel. And so if you get the train to Paris from London, you go under the Channel Tunnel, you pop out in France, and at a certain point you hit these forests of tall um, uh, municipal concrete tower blocks, right, that people are living in, all into the outskirts of, outskirts of Paris until you get to the centre. And what you realise there uh, in that moment is that what the actual spatial organisation of Paris is, which is this very wealthy, um, overwhelmingly white centre, and then at the margins, um, often migrants, people from lower income brackets, pushed out to these uh, massive um, uh, uh, new towns built in the 1960s and 1970s. And so Paris is a really good example of how uh, a certain kind of fantasy of beautiful urban space is predicated on the exclusion of many kinds of people precisely from that space. Or the kind of fantasy of the 19th century art deco beautiful city is predicated on uh, the erection of, you know, what, what often certainly looks like from, from, from a train window, admittedly, a kind of dystopian vision of, of, of peripheral towers and difficult living circumstances. Um, so actually Paris is a pretty good example for how, you know, not so much, not so much in, in relationship to nature, but a pretty good example for how the spatial organization of a city can have big social and one can imagine big psychological effects. Tell me about the French idea, and it's been adopted in a few other places, of just planting hundreds, thousands of trees in busy downtown spaces. Could this work? Is this really an idea meant to actually be implemented or a thought experiment? Certainly in Paris, you'd have to give credit and say it is an idea that's being implemented. So the mayor of Paris is Anne Hidalgo who's really made her reputation on the transformation of Paris, not just into, into a green space, but into a bike-friendly city, into, you know, the kind of, almost the, we could say the the, the poster child of what a, you know, high-quality uh, major metropolitan centre looks like in an era of, you know, significant climate change. 
So it's definitely not a thought experiment. They're definitely doing it. Um, is it a solution? No, it's surely not a solution, or it's not in any kind of global sense. I mean, the tree planting itself is is super interesting. This kind of idea has really taken hold um, across the political spectrum that like planting trees is going to resolve climate change, and this to me like seems like such an obvious distraction. Right? One, there's just simply not enough land on the planet to build enough trees that it's going to have any serious effect on on the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. But also planting trees and kind of looking at trees and being around trees is to me such an obvious way of not doing any kind of serious transformational transformational work on the way we live in cities today, right? It's just, it's the same spaces that we have now, but they're a bit greener. There's some trees, there's a green roof, there's a living wall, whatever it is. Um, I can't see this as anything other than a psychological bam rather than any serious attempt to intervene in the relationship between cities and climate crisis. Some of my favorite parts of the book is when you um, socialize, attend conferences and socialize around these people and Mm. just note the phrases that they use in public. And they are somewhere in between deranged and (laughs) dangerous. They I I, mm, it's comical. But can you give us, uh, and so of course you're going to let the reader in on that so we can delight in just how far-fetched many of these phrases and ideas are. But what were some of your favorite and what is the deeper point that you're trying to get at with that? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a good question. I mean, I should say I, I am, I'm more, I hope I don't come across as too sympathetic and unsympathetic on the page because I'm more sympathetic to, to some of these folks than 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 I let on sometimes. Um, and yet, I think we do need to give ourselves permission to think a bit critically about it. I guess the way I describe it in the book is there's often this quite quite evangelical kind of air or tone to a lot of these kind of meetings. Um, a lot of sense that what we're really doing when we think about the relationship between uh, urban planning and nature is is not so much in a kind of architectural or planning space, but in a kind of a theological or spiritual space. That so what we're really doing is kind of healing the collective spirit that's having some kind of you know massive breakdown um, at the end of at the beginning of the twenty first century. Yeah, um, it is this healing of the spirit mm. that gets uh, that is the impetus for so many of these projects, but driven by this idea, we're talking about massive expenditures, massive amounts of resources and opportunity costs. So the more we buy into a forest bath, let's say, as something that could work, the less we explore exactly what you were talking about before, the actual benefits of, say, high-rise housing in an urban setting done right that benefits a massive amount of people. I really think opportunity cost is, is a critical thing because you know, forest bathing is not a hateable thing, right? Forest bathing is people going out to spend time doing, you know, low-key meditative practice in green space with a group of like-minded people, you know, feeling a bit better after a few hours doing that. There's nothing there's nothing wrong with that and there's nothing about it that should be stopped. I think where, where things become problematic is when we get this cultural assumption that this is what's going to fix the problem of mental health in the city. This is going to fix this, whatever the sense of kind of collective spiritual crisis we have about urban space today, that this is a serious approach to it. And it's just not. And as long as we're talking about forest bathing, we're not talking about, yeah, housing tenure, um, precarious work, precarious work, job security, inequality, all those really boring things about contemporary cities that we know stress people out, that we know make people deeply unhappy and that we know play a big role in the development of mental health problems. As long as we're sending people into forests, we're not dealing with any of that. Yeah. And well, let me just uh, read this 
uh, to you. You wrote this, so you, you know what I'm going to say, but hold on. Okay. Even in our resolutely empirical age, where the rhetoric of what works governs clinical decision-making, this much deeper sense that the forest corrects a larger historical disaster is not very far below the surface. So embracing nature, which really is plentiful and all around us, and uh, we might not know it if we live in London or New York, but there are more trees than buildings in both of our countries. Embracing that as the cure does also offer a way too easy and inaccurate solution to, you know, the historical disasters that we're trying to correct for. I think something that's really interesting about forest bathing. So I'm actually, since I wrote the book, I've been doing a bunch of interviews with uh, people who do forest bathing, who do, who are practitioners of forest bathing, who take people out. And so I've done a lot of interviews with them on their motivations, why they do it, what they think it's doing at that kind of larger level. And overwhelmingly, what they talk about is um, a sense of return and a sense of return to a kind of human condition that was um, before the disaster of modernity, as they would see it. So before industrialization, before urbanization, um, really before we stopped living in relatively small agricultural communities near the land, near animals, in relatively small groups, which is often understood by a lot of people, I think not with, a, well, with not a lot of good evidence, as the kind of psychologically superior way to live, right? There was something mm-hmm. about that way of life that was just good for us. It was how we were meant to be, and we were happier when we did that. And it's really when we started moving into these, you know, big, anonymous, noisy spaces that we got stressed out and unhappy and developed, you know, uh, epidemics of depression and so on. That sense of return to something that went wrong, I think, really animates and motivates a huge amount of, like, what we now call forest bathing and, and associated kind of practices. Yeah, and it plays into the noble, noble savage trope. It plays into a lot of idealization of um, you know, pre-industrial communities and pre-industrial life, but look at the lifespans, look at, huh. the, uh, a, a, look at the what we would call equity or equality, uh, look at the fairness of many of the, the opportunity for advancement. There is a reason, and it wasn't just accident or capitalists dictating it upon us, there is a reason why we actually evolved into more urban settings. We haven't done it perfectly, but as you point out in your book, there is a huge difference between what's going on in Chicago and what's going on in Manila or Dakar. And there's a, but yet within the uh, verbiage around urban planning, let's say there's a conflation of those situations. It's not really Mm -hmm. helping any real people here or in the future. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a real problem with how we think about cities today is we've just, I think, unconsciously, collectively taken on a kind of assumption of dystopia, right? That what cities are are kind of unequal places, places with a lot of crime, kind of capitalist dystopias, right? Where, where all that's happening is the kind of, you know, extraction of surplus wealth and, and, and you know, the accumulation of wealth and so on and so forth. Right. And completely forgotten that underneath, I mean, maybe all that stuff is true, maybe all that's happening, but there's so much more to the city than that in terms of its cultural life, in terms of its possibility, in terms of its, you know, it's not just its diversity in that kind of fluffy sense, but I mean diversity in just the sheer sense of like human possibility that is like present in, in a serious city. I mean, I'm someone who kind of grew up in a, you know, a very tiny, you know, uh, rural place in the middle of Ireland, you know, as rural as yeah. you can get. Adjacent um, to a bog, you say. Literally on a bog, yeah. I mean, where, where I grew up, I mean, people are still hitting Were their houses. Were you Shrek? <laughs> I mean, people are still hitting their houses with, you know, turf to dig out of the ground, right? I mean, not to, not to you know, play into too many stereotypes, but there's literally a bog there. Um, and so for someone like me, the idea that, like, 
the urban represents dystopia is just baffling. You know, I think if, if there's a certain kind of privilege to thinking like living in a city like New York or Los Angeles or London is problematic or dystopian. It's not, you know, it's, it's probably the peak of human existence um, yeah. as we know it for, you know, obviously not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And certainly but for, the, you know, there is, there is every once in a while an occasion when urban dwellers such as ourselves in New York or Los Angeles will get their backs up and defend the city. And that is when someone from an exurb or more rural area or just from a a class of person we don't like insults the city. So when Donald Trump calls Baltimore Mm. a hellhole, everyone will rally around to talk about the fine civic virtues of the city of Baltimore. Or when one of the guys from Duck Dynasty will denigrate ever living in a city, well, that is the the one opportunity we stand up for living in a city. And it does exactly do what your book is trying to do, which is show... The utter, well, both hypocrisy, but the nonsense of this valorization of the natural, which we don't even always define. Like, I think you say there's a passage in your book where you talk about touching a brick wall versus touching a leaf is really supposed to have that much of a difference to the human animal. But yeah, a lot of people in charge of building the next houses assert that it does. Yeah, I mean, I really think we need to think really seriously about what we're talking about when we describe something as natural, right? There's, I mean, as you say, there's no strong philosophical justification for that category, right? So, you know, a concrete tower block, everything that goes into a concrete tower block is natural. It's from the earth. None of it is, came from space, you know? So the idea that there's some major metaphysical difference between a tower block and a tree is just completely, you know, unjustified. So it's not to say that there's no difference between those things or that when we call something natural, we're not signifying anything. But it is to say we need to think seriously about what it is we're talking about. Because whatever we're talking about, it's not physical, it's cultural and maybe psychological. So we do, I would say the book actually uh, breaks down into two different forms of argument. And one is, as we vilify the man-made and valorize the natural, one set of arguments is that The man-made is actually very good very often. Mm -hmm. And another set of arguments is this thing that we're calling the natural, we have no good definition for it. It's both a capacious definition and in many ways an an inaccurate definition. I I see both those uh, two main uh, thrusts of the argument working together. But is there one over the other that you think bears the most emphasis? I think the argument that for me bears the most emphasis is that we need to take seriously the history of people, the history of people who are, are who are kind of pro-nature, who think we need to transform the world in a more pro-natural direction, is not good, right? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful book by a historian called Anna Bramwell that's quite old now. Um, and she says something in that, like, I hope I'm not misquoting her, but she says something like, um, you know, the first, the first government in the world that had a serious environmental policy was the Third Reich. You know, and that's not a coincidence, right? That there's a real history of that kind of political movement and a real overt, strange, pathological interest in the natural or what is natural or how we are meant to be or who we are not meant to be and so on and so forth. And I think there's a real uh, lack of interest in that history among, especially among the environmental movement today. Um, I think for me, that's the argument that I'd really like to get across, which is that the history of trying to produce ourselves as a natural species, of trying to produce our habitats as natural, of trying to exclude that which is thought to be unnatural is really, really dodgy, um, has always gone somewhere bad, um, and will do again, I'm quite certain. 
Well, the story that you put out and put forward in the Living Cities, Why Cities Don't Need to Be Green and to Be Great, was a really entertaining one. Des Fitzgerald is professor of medical humanities and social sciences at University College Cork in Cork, Ireland. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. And now the spiel. The last day that I was in Israel, I saw the 47-minute video assembled from Hamas GoPros, cell phones, and some Israel security cameras that chronicled the atrocities of October 7th. Actually, it chronicled some of the atrocities. A graphic on the screen told us, after we were just bludgeoned with bodies, carnage, and inhumanity, that what we saw was less than 10% of the killings on that day. But I've been thinking ever since about what I wanted to say about the film that's different and that's useful. So first of all, it wasn't actually 47 minutes. I don't think I didn't time it, but the length actually changes because new scenes are added and subtracted or presented in a different order because there is an active debate within Israel, within the power centers of Israel, about whether to show this film. The foreign ministry says, yes, the world can't forget. The IDF, Israel Defense Forces, the military, says no, the film is potentially radicalizing and could act as a calling card for future terrorists. I understand each position. I understand why each ministry would come to their particular conclusions. The foreign ministry is concerned with hearts and minds. The defense forces care about eradicating the enemy. So I could talk a lot about many of the individual scenes. I'm still very much bothered by two young brothers who see their father die in front of them by grenade. I am still bothered by the mass of young people huddled together in a shelter, which winds up serving as a kind of a slaughtering pen, but I'm not going to dwell on that. So first, let me give you two stray observations that I haven't heard elsewhere. One is, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a theologian. But I did think of my Muslim friends as I watched Hamas terrorists after terrorists pump bullets into defenseless people or sometimes already dead bodies and praise God or praise Allah. And I remember consciously being so offended on behalf of the Muslim people that I know. I do not deign to tell anyone anything about how their faith works, what their religion means, what the true tenets are. But it just can't possibly be that. What a horrible but ubiquitous appeal to God. If there is that God, there is no way he possibly approves of the monstrosity I saw. I also had a thought about how familiar so many of the scenes were. Not the overall arc of the scenes, but just frame by frame, these were things I've seen. War movies, those uh, pretty trendy found footage films, cutting edge Paul Greengrass or Peter Berg movies that throw you right into the action. They're supposed to be disorienting. They're supposed to be loud and violent. This all was. 
what I saw didn't look strange. It didn't look unknown. I said, oh, I've seen this in other iterations before. But there is no storytelling to the movie. There is no grammar to orient the viewer, you know, establishing shots and who's who and where we are. And that actually underscores how senseless death actually happens. It happens senselessly. So I was revulsed and I was appalled and all the reactions a human should have in the face of inhumanity. But then I began to think, what if the, let's say, the other side, not Hamas, but the side most opposed to Israel incursion, the side who are protesting on behalf of the Palestinians, the Palestinians themselves, what if they had an opportunity to put together a film, a horror film of their own? In some way, they have. It's called Every Night on the BBC or Al Jazeera, definitely right now, all the time online. We'd have the pictures of the people who are affected by the war. There'd be babies, there would be bodies, and we've seen all these babies and bodies and people wounded in rubble. But I asked, would it have the same effect? Would it provoke the same outrage, the same sadness? Would we want revenge against the perpetrator? You know, if I'm being honest, probably we would. A lot can be conveyed if you're working with that kind of raw footage and you use editing. But I think there would be differences between that film that I'm imagining and what I actually saw in Israel. One thing that came across is the intense passion, the flat-out exuberance of the Hamas killers. They praise God. They call their parents. One parent tells one of the killers, kill, 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 kill. They shout in ecstasy. I doubt you'd see that from the Israeli pilots who dropped bombs or fired missiles from a remove. Does that make them better? Does that make them more sophisticated? No, it doesn't. The easy answer is it doesn't. You have to realize that the circumstances of the Israeli warrior is to be serious and focused and mission-oriented. The Hamas fighter, militant terrorist, had to work himself up into a frenzied, adrenalized state to carry out such interpersonal killings. But I think side by side, if you just showed the glee versus the seriousness of each person engaged in what they would call acts of war, what I would call an act of war versus an act of murder. But the average human being on planet Earth, setting aside their sympathies, would find it very off-putting to the point of disgust to see the gleeful slaughter that I saw. I know, I know that when homicide is carried out without emotion, as in, say, uh, an execution chamber or with the remorselessness of an army just mercilessly doing its job, marching through town, that is said to be chilling and soulless and contrary to humanity. Still, I think barbarism strikes a more appalled chord. Interestingly, it's just this point, the barbarism of the attackers, that some of America's fiercest critics of Israel have tried to use against the Israelis. Former Bernie Sanders spokesperson Brianna Joy Gray on the show The Rising made the case that it is dehumanizing for the Israelis to portray Hamas as Hamas actually acted. Increasingly, it seems, Israel is relying on other narratives, chiefly that Hamas is uniquely barbaric and that this barbarism implicitly justifies Israel's inhumane treatment of the 2.3 million residents of Gaza. As Elliot Cohen wrote of Hamas in the Atlantic in the days after the attack, 
Barbarians fight because they enjoy violence. They do not only kill and maim, the armies of civilized states do that, of course, all the time, but go out of their way to inflict pain, to torture, to rape, and above all, to humiliate. Jesse Klein in the National Post was more explicit. He wrote, footage of Hamas barbarism shows why ceasefire is not an option. Israelis take steps to avoid civilian casualties. Hamas revels in their slaughter. Well, Hamas didn't sneak into Israel and slip cyanide capsules into the tea of 1,200 Israelis. They killed the Israelis in the manner that they killed them. With great joy, they filmed it and they wanted the world to know about it. The Israelis then put up the videos the terrorists themselves made and strung just a small fraction of those videos together in a, an unadorned documentation of what happened. I think that no matter the means of executions, the Israelis themselves would be equally provoked to respond. I also think think that no matter the means of execution, decent people would and should be appalled, not by the manner of the murder, just by the fact of the murder that happened. I can think of an example of murdering Jews that wasn't particularly cinematic, that wasn't loud or flashy or requiring you to see different war films to say, oh, I know what's going on. This form of killing was in fact textbook methodical and the only sound was a slow hiss Yet decent people the world over were appalled, and decent and resolute people did vow never again. So this here, October 7th, that's the again. And it's not a manipulation to pay attention to this film or to ask that it be paid attention to. It's not a turning of your back on humanity to be roused to action. I'd argue it's you inhumane not to care. I tried to process the film through maximum humanity, to think about the implications, to question if I was being manipulated, to imagine the shoe being on the other foot. I just did that in this spiel. Try to be conscious of not having an overreaction. This film was a horrible reflection on objectively horrible actions. To ignore, to discount, to what about, to dismiss it would compound the horror. So one last anecdote about my watching of this movie, about why the film is important. So an Arab member of the Knesset, Iman Khatib Yassin, in the days after October 7th, expressed disbelief that the attacks really happened. So you should know, Arab Israelis are full citizens of Israel. They are full voting members of the Knesset. They constitute 20% of Israel's population. The leader of Khatib Yassin's party is a politician named Mansour Abbas, who might well become the first Arab Israeli in a ruling cabinet. And he quickly denounced his party members' comments, suspending her, in fact, without pay, in fact. But there she was at my screening. I couldn't help but notice her, the first hijab-wearing woman elected to the Knesset. She walked in late, and I didn't think to watch her as she watched the film. But then, about 40-something minutes in, I could not help but notice. She got up from her seat. She tried to feel her way out of the screening room. She was literally holding on to the backs of chairs, tables, whatever could offer any support as she staggered out. She has now issued an apology and has not disputed the events of October 7th since. Maybe the hearts and mind crowd is on to something. And that's it for today's show. I am thankful for Corey Wara, the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson, the senior producer. I'm so very thankful for Michelle Pasca, who is not only CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. Fun fact, she is my wife. Try not to get nepotism involved, but 
I want to say that I'm grateful for that. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. We will not have a show tomorrow for Thanksgiving. There is a compendium of all the Israel reportage, except maybe this one, on Friday. Check out that.